Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see so many of you this morning. It's, uh, I know we all are praying for and uh, sorry to hear about the number that are sick and out. So please continue to keep them in your prayers and be uh, visiting where you can, sending text messages, emails, and uh, appreciate uh, the signing up to take meals for those who, uh, uh, who can use it. It's, so I was talking to Keith yesterday. You know, I realize, and it's hard, it's hard to put myself in his shoes, but it is a humbling thing to ask for help. And so um, it took actually a while before he would even accept it originally, and so I know we've had meals for them a couple other times. But um, I, I say that because, you know, all of us as we enter different stages of life, we are reminded, sometimes forced upon us, that we need one another and just the care to have for one another. This is one of those very practical opportunities we have to, to be the hands and feet of Christ, to minister to one another, to love one another. So please do take advantage of that, certainly for Keith and Deanne's sake and for the love for them, but also for your own sake. It will bless your soul as you follow the admonition and instruction of Christ and the apostles in terms of how we love and care for one another. So please be doing that. And um, uh, there's others who are sick uh, with uh, Myra Burns is out with COVID. There's a couple of others. And um, please continue to be praying for Dave Erickson as he's undergoing his uh, uh, cancer treatments. So, well, if you haven't already opened your Bible to Matthew 12, let's do that together this morning as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. As much as we may want that schoolyard rhyme to be true, we know it's not, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. The older we get, the more we realize this. The more we realize the importance, the significance, and the enduring effect that words have upon us, upon the memory of persons even. The early American author Nathaniel Hawthorne noted words, so innocent and powerless as they are, standing in a dictionary, how potent for good or for evil they become in the hands of one who knows how to combine them. And as true as this is, we all probably, if we were to pause and think about it, all of us think too little about the eternal consequences that words have. Now, there's anyone here this morning that thinks carefully enough about the impact and the significance and the eternal ramifications of what we say each and every day. How many of us, when we wake up in the morning, think, I need to watch what I say today? Or when getting ready to go about our day, stop and consider what Solomon says in Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Words matter profoundly. And this morning, as we look at Matthew chapter 12, Jesus reminds us not only of the power of words, but of the judgment that comes to all persons for the words they have spoken in this life. This morning is really, as we go through this text, as we read it and we look at it and we study it and we ask questions together, it offers us an opportunity to stop and ask, what does my speech reveal about my inward longings and desires? It's an opportunity to stop and to do what we talked about when we did our summer study through Haggai and to consider our ways. What does my speech say about who and what I worship? 
What does my speech say about how much or how little I care about others? What does my speech say about how much I love Christ Jesus? Importantly also, it's an opportunity to pause and confess where we've sinned through our speech and ask the Spirit's help in controlling our tongue because it will take the Spirit's help. James teaches us that controlling our tongues is a supernatural feat. It is not something we can accomplish through our own ability. He says in James 3.8, But no one, that is no man, can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. The implication then is that how can a man tame his tongue? Only by the power of God. So let's look as we consider this very serious, very important, very timely text this morning. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 31. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or against the Spirit, shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers... How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's pray as we study this text together this morning. Father, as we open up your word this morning and read these words penned by Matthew as he recorded your words as you were upon this earth. Lord, these are serious, they are sobering, they immediately raise questions in our minds. Pray for your spirit to help illumine our minds, to give us understanding as we look into your word that we would rightly understand, interpret, and that we would apply these things to our lives this morning. And that our study of these things would direct our thoughts, our attentions, and our affections to Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We observed last week the power of the Spirit of God through Jesus the Messiah as Jesus healed a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. But do you remember how the religious leaders responded to such an amazing feat, a clearly supernatural act of casting out a demon and healing this man? They sought to deny the obvious. In fact, not just deny it, they sought to go the exact opposite and try to convince people that it was not the power of God they were witnessing, but rather the power of Satan. Last week, Jesus thoroughly dismantled this argument illustrating that the Pharisees had set themselves up in opposition to the kingdom of God and to himself as the anointed messianic king. They had rejected the kingdom of God that had drawn near. And so Jesus had begun that rebuke, and as we mentioned last week, that was just the first half of it. He continues the rebuke this morning. 
And so most of the yous here, he's directing to those Pharisees. And Jesus turns his attention to now addressing the words of the Pharisees, both to demonstrate their inward condition of wickedness as well as their future destination if they will not repent and confess Jesus as the Son of God. Through his rebuke of the Pharisees and religious leaders, Jesus provides us an important reminder of the significance and importance of not only guarding our words, but also ensuring that the treasury of our heart is filled with good as a necessary component of guarding our words. So let's look first at verses 31 through 32 as Jesus continues this rebuke of the Pharisees. And right at the beginning, it's important to note that connecting word here, that therefore, that joins this section, verses 31 through 37, with what is preceded. And verse 31 opens with, therefore, or because of this. I sometimes like to, when I see a therefore, interject because of this. And that's because we get so used to seeing a therefore that we don't always remember the, the importance, the connection, the logical connection that's being drawn with the previous passage. In fact, it's an important rule of ter interpretation, and it's a fun little way of remembering it is whenever you see a therefore, stop, look, see what the therefore is there for. Stop, look, and ask. It helps us to, and it can help to restate by saying something like because of this to force us to look back and establish the context. And this context is very important, the context we just described of the casting out of the demon from the possessed man who was blind and mute, who upon that demon exorcism and casting out was immediately able to see and to speak. The response of the Pharisees, them trying to equate the power of God with the power of Satan. It's the context that we encounter when we come to this section. So as we move into verses 31 through 32, keep verses 22 through 30 in view, specifically 25 through 30. And context is particularly important here because, as one commentator notes, in Christian circles, it doesn't take long before Matthew 12, 31 through 32, or its parallel passages lead to questions such as, Pastor, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What if a person thinks he may have committed the unforgivable sin? You may have been asked that question. You may have asked that question. In one of his sermons on Matthew 12, 32, Augustine notes, perhaps there is not in all Holy Scripture found a more important or more difficult question than what blasphemy against the Spirit is and who is and who is not guilty of this blasphemy. With such a monumental task in front of us, where do we begin? Well, it's probably best to start by identifying the meaning of the word blasphemy. So what does it mean to blaspheme? Well, it, at its root, it really means just to speak against. In fact, in the very next verse, Matthew or Jesus, Matthew recording what Jesus is, Jesus is saying, describes that action of speaking against. They're meaning virtually the same thing. But it's not just speaking against generically. It also implies certain things. Blasphemy identifies words and speech that is abusive, that is defamatory that is denigrating, that is disrespectful, that is often slanderous. Like I said, the term speak against here means exactly the same thing in this context. It's to speak that abusive, 
that defaming, that denigrating, that disrespectful or slanderous words against someone. So that helps us to understand the context, at least, or the meaning of blasphemy here in this context. What does it mean? Interestingly, Jesus identifies two objects of blaspheming, the Son of Man and the Holy Spirit. What is really interesting is that Jesus differentiates between blasphemy against the Son of Man and the Spirit of God. So before we even dig into understanding this unpardonable, unpardonable sin, as it's often called, we need to understand this differentiation that's taking place. It's blasphemy in both cases. It's disrespectful, it's denigrating, it's slanderous, it's defamatory, it's abusive in both cases. But in order to answer the question of why and how can it be differentiated, it's important to have our whole Bible in mind. Because there's several things we know to be true that inform our interpretation of this differentiation. Now, to begin with, we understand, and perhaps this is why it is so hard to understand, because we know that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit eternally coexist, are of the same essence, distinct in persons, but undistinguishable in glory and holiness. I strongly encourage you to read and perhaps even print out and keep in your Bible a copy of the Athanasius Creed that helps to define the Trinity in its biblical, most biblical way. It affirms and articulates biblical truth concerning the Trinity. It provides language and terminology that's helpful in avoiding error and even heresy. It's important to understand the Godhead. It's interesting to come to passages like this where we see all three persons of the Trinity. We see the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Spirit. To understand their unity and yet their distinctions. To highlight why this is so important after a why it's so important to understand and rightly understand the Trinity. Just very recently, there was a new president chosen of the Southern Baptist Convention. He was a little lesser well-known, and so persons wanted to immediately learn about him, so they started to look up his sermons and went to his church website, and they looked at his doctrinal statement, and within hours of him being elected, the social media world was a buzz. And it was a buzz because they were shocked to find that in that doctrinal statement, whoever had put it together, whoever had approved it to be put on the website, had used the term parts instead of persons when referring to the Trinity. You say, so what? Well, that's the heresy of Sabellianism, or one of its parts, which is uh, or, uh, one of its uh, other parts of partialism. And so... It was a heresy that arose around 190 A.D. It was quickly, it was harshly refuted by the early church. It was one of the, the many Trinitarian heresies that gave rise to the Athanasian Creed. Within a few hours of blowing up on social media, it was edited and corrected. And I'm glad it was. It needed to be corrected. Although it's a bit ironic, especially for anyone who's familiar with Southern Baptist polity, to see something corrected that fast when the policy and procedures normally would have required a congregational approval for anything, first a meeting, then a committee, and then potentially two more votes, for something to be corrected in hours really illustrates that when, uh, when you're in the negative public eye of social media, even Baptist polity goes out the window. There's more than just here an understanding of the Trinity. Secondly, we know 
that the incarnate Son has in his humanity emptied himself and humbled himself. And so these two truths, the the oneness of God, the equality of God, the equality of persons, and yet the act of the Son taking on flesh, his humanity, emptying himself and humbling himself, become important in our understanding of what is at stake here and helping to define it for us. Because on the one hand, there is no distinction between blaspheming the Spirit and blaspheming the Son. But in Jesus' humanity, there does exist some distinction. And notice carefully what language Jesus uses to describe himself at this very moment. He describes himself here as the Son of Man with an emphasis on that humanity. The blasphemy against the Son is here different than the blasphemy against the Spirit. Probably best understood in speaking with regard to speaking out of ignorance, unable to comprehend God in his human form. Paul addresses this. He addresses this specific type of ignorance in Acts 3. You can go and turn there. Acts 3, verse 14. Here, speaking to the Jews, many of whom who had cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And so in Acts 3, verse 14, we read, But you disown the Holy and Righteous One and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. That is the exchanging of Jesus for Barabbas. But you put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So we see this ignorance that is addressed there for those unable to comprehend God in human form. And that is to be distinguished here from this blasphemy of the Spirit. Returning to Matthew 12, when we look at this description of blasphemy, note carefully here, when Jesus says every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, note what he is not saying. He is not saying or implying that these sins are not serious. Nor is he saying or implying that they are automatically set aside. He's simply saying they will be forgiven. And they'll be forgiven in the normal way of forgiveness. Again, this is where we need to have our whole Bible in mind. We know the pattern for forgiveness. 1 John 1.9 describes that. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They will be forgiven in the normal way of forgiveness, where the sinner repents and seeks pardon and penitence and lowliness and faith. These types of sins that are described here are serious, and if not repented of, will have consequences, as we see at the end of these verses, but they are forgivable. So this returns us to the unforgivable sin. So what can we say and not say about it? I don't seek to unravel every mystery of it. I won't satisfy every question that you have. But there are things that we can say and 
limits to what we can say. From the context, Jesus is dealing with unbelievers. They are described as brood of vipers. These are not believers. These are clearly unbelievers. What I find interesting is that it's almost always, though, believers who are somehow concerned that they have committed this sin. While I cannot guarantee one's salvation, I can say with a great deal of confidence that if you are concerned you have committed this sin, you haven't. The one who commits a sin shows no remorse, has no awareness, and no concern for what they've done. Next, we know the immediate context is persons being confronted with the incontrovertible evidence of the power of the Spirit of God and the nearness of the kingdom of God. Here, through miraculous delivering of a blind and mute man from demon possession. Elsewhere, where we see somewhat similar terminology regarding those who turn away, we see a very similar description in Hebrews 6.5, for example. Describes those who have tasted the good word of the Lord, of God, and then it says, and the power of the ages of the age to come. The powers of the age to come. What is that? It's a description, again, of the nearness of the kingdom of God. That is, the kingdom of God in its power, in a unique way, it's been manifested, and they've tasted of it and seen it. What then can we conclude about this unpardonable sin? Well, first off, blasphemy against the Spirit must be tied back to the previous verses, specifically verse 28, which notes the works of Jesus, specifically those of casting out the demon by the Spirit of God, which was a sign of the nearness of the kingdom of God. In the case of these Pharisees and religious leaders, they experienced experience the nearness, the power of God at that moment. Through this miraculous work and action of the Spirit, and then not only did they not repent, there were others in the crowd that day who did not repent, but they went the opposite and attributed these deeds of the Spirit of God to Satan. So the question then is, is it possible for a person to commit this sin today? I really cannot dogmatically say yes or no. But the warning I would provide is to beware of persevering in the hardness of an unrepentant heart. At a bare minimum, it is as one commentator notes, Jesus warning his enemies that they have set themselves on the road to perdition. And like poured concrete, the longer it sits, the harder it becomes. In the case of these Pharisees there that day, I believe they had revealed the settled course of their hearts. And so it stands as a warning to any who would follow in their path. So if that's true, does this apply to Christians, to believers? Or are we free to toss it aside as really an unimportant you know, text, an interesting text, but an unimportant one to our lives as believers? My answer is not in the least. Look at what it teaches us about the nature of the Spirit of God. He's co-equality with God. Look at how it instructs us concerning forgiveness, the need for forgiveness. It should also make us incredibly grateful that God in his mercy would keep us from having the hardness of these Pharisees that day. It should stoke the fires of our affection and our love for Christ as we give thanks to him. 
So rather than tossing it aside, I would rather encourage you to meditate upon this passage. Dwell upon it. Use it, as Paul says, in working out, not working for, but working out your salvation in fear and trembling. Let it remind you of the holiness of God, that he cares very much about how persons speak of him. And likewise, let them be a window into your own hearts and minds. This is probably why Jesus turns next toward the inner man. In the next verse, toward an evaluation of the heart, which as we've discussed previously, is not a reference to emotions, like we use the term heart today, but rather to one's thoughts, their intentions, their motivations. What is it that makes up the drive of a person, the thinking of a person? In verse 33, Jesus begins with a favorite and common motif, and that is the tree and its fruit. And you probably already recognize that illustration, that metaphor, that motif from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 15 through 20, where Jesus warns there specifically of false teachers, that you'll know them by their fruits. Implying as well that you'll know true teachers by their fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree, if it produces anything at all, produces bad fruit. The motif of the tree or vine and its produce is embedded throughout the Old Testament. We find it at the beginning of the Psalter in Psalm 1 for the blessed man. The prophet Jeremiah uses this motif in Jeremiah 17.8. In fact, the prophets use it extensively. It is a common illustration, not only because of its theological heritage that builds and builds with connotation throughout the Old Testament, but because it works so well. It is such a clear and vivid illustration. We all get it. Whether it's a plant we have on our windowsill or whether it's a apple trees that we go to pick or look at. We understand a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree, if it, anything at all, is bad fruit. An unhealthy and sickly tree doesn't produce anything good, either in quantity or quality. Whereas a healthy tree produces both quantity and quality. In verse 34, Jesus then takes this illustration and, as if he's using a spotlight, puts it wholly back on these Pharisees and religious leaders. Now, though, compared to earlier when he was addressing them, no punches are pulled. Jesus echoes the words of John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 7, where he calls these religious leaders a brood of vipers. Now, is Jesus just being mean? Is he just trying to get under this, their skin? No, this is actually quite a descriptive and fitting analogy. Uh, probably more so than we realize at first. By calling them vipers, Jesus alludes to their venomous and dangerous nature. What is it that's dangerous about a snake, a, a uh, venomous snake? It's their mouth, right? It's the mouth where the true danger lies, and so it is in the mouths and words of these Pharisees and religious leaders that deadly venom lurks. Additionally, more subtly, Jesus is alluding to their heritage. We briefly touched upon this last week, but who is it that is a liar and deceiver from the beginning? Who was it who through their words deceived and enticed the first man and woman to sin? And what is his form? It's that of a serpent. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, Satan is described as a serpent. Jesus will use this phrase, brood of vipers, one more time in Matthew 23, 33. And there the connection to that serpent of old, Satan, is even more explicit 
because he calls them not only a brood of vipers, but he calls them serpents, the very term that is reserved for Satan. And so he's associated them with their father, the devil. Jesus points out that these Pharisees are incapable of speaking good because their inner being is fully corrupted. As one commentator notes, words reveal the inner condition of the human creature. The mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. Therefore, one's words about Jesus will result either in acquittal or condemnation at the judgment. Those who confess Jesus before men now, he will confess them before the Father in heaven on the last day. Those who deny Jesus and reject his claim that in him the reign of God has come, this, this sin against the Spirit will not be forgiven even in the age that is coming. Verse 35 restates the end of verse 34, but it, it shifts metaphors just slightly. You see that, right? It describes the inner person, specifically the heart, that is what we would normally call the mind. It describes it as a, as a storehouse or a treasury. And it's out of this treasury or this storehouse that a person then speaks. Applying this truth to all persons, Matthew 15, 18 through 20 in Matthew 15, 18 through 20, Jesus says, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Let's think for a moment about how that applies to us. I mean, it's one thing to, when we get to this text, and I'm guilty of this, is look down my nose at the Pharisees. But let's stop for a moment and ask, how do I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, create a storehouse or a treasury within my own heart that results in good? How do I do that? Well, it helps to think about the image of the storehouse or the treasury and even ask ourselves, what's the purpose? And maybe you've been driving around in the farms. If you drive over towards Alpharetta, you see those big silos, the storehouses. What, what are they for? sit there looking nice and empty. No, they're, they're to hold things. They're to, the purpose is to be filled. That's the intention on, behind a storehouse, behind a treasury, is to fill it. So the question then becomes, with what are we filling our heart and mind? If we return for a moment to the motif of the tree that produces good fruit in Psalm 1, what do we find? You can turn there. Go to Psalm 1. It talks about what produces good fruit, but these are the very things that we should be filling the storehouses of our mind with. Psalm 1 begins with, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but rather his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. And you may very well know the rest of that, and the wicked are not so. But what is it that makes this tree, which is illustrating the blessed man, what is it that makes him prosper? What is it that causes him to bear good fruit? With what does he fill himself? It begins with the law of the Lord. And how do you 
How do you fill yourself with it? Well, it's by meditating on it. Day and night, that's a way of showing continual, habitual practice. Continually returning to it. Feeding upon it. Whether it's through your personal study, through Bible studies that you do together, whether it be on Sunday mornings for Sunday school or listening to a sermon, we, we begin thinking about these things. But it can't end there. It's got to continue. As we continue thinking about it throughout our day and how it applies to certain situations. Thinking negatively in that filling is be to do the opposite of the walking, standing, or sitting with sinners and scoffers. Now again, that doesn't mean we retreat from the world, but it does mean that if we're going to fill up the majority of our time, we should be filling it up with walking, standing, and sitting, not with sinners and scoffers, but with whom? Those who love the Lord. Those who motivate you to dwell upon his word, to think upon his word, to refresh you, to prepare you for going out into the world. We can't be so removed from the world that we can't preach the gospel and be a light. We have to be there. We have to be amongst the world. That was one of the errors that the Roman Catholic Church made in isolating. And so we fill ourselves with the word of God. We could add to that prayer. Prayer is best done when meditating and thinking upon God's word and praying the truths of scripture and applying them to our lives. And so we fill it by reading scripture. We fill it by speaking words of edification. We fill it by song, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we fill it with prayer. This creates within us a storehouse out of which and through it, through our words, reveals what is inside, the good. What is it that's good? It's that which pleases the Lord. Well, you can almost sense the shift in verse 36. Almost as if Jesus lifts his head from looking directly at the Pharisees and begins to look around, perhaps even raising his voice a little, making sure that everyone can hear because he now directs his attention. He wants to make sure that everyone understands this is now to all of you. He opens with but and directs this warning to all persons. At this point, it would be too easy to think, at least I didn't blaspheme the Spirit. So I've got nothing really to worry about. But in case that thought had entered any of their minds or any of our minds, Jesus makes it clear that there is not a single word that is uttered that will not be judged. It is not just the blasphemy of the Spirit that will be judged. All words are judged and held up before a holy God. We understand that this obviously applies to ungodly and sinful language, right? I mean, there are certain words, there are certain things that we would never repeat in good company. Because we know it is distasteful, it is ugly, it is sinful. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, Ephesians 5.4 says, And there, there must be no filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. And so that, that part seems obvious, but then the question to ask is, is it only avoiding what might be called filthy language? Lies, slanderous words, is that really the focus, just avoiding those things? Is that where it ends? Well, the answer is no, it's much more than that. 
Paul provides the positive side to the instruction concerning language in Ephesians 4.29, where he says, Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth or proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. We need to work to ensure that our words are purposeful, purposely designed for edification, which, by the way, is going to take effort. It is going to take effort to have edifying words to make that begin to mark all of your speech. It also takes prayer, and it will take reliance on the Spirit and humility, recognizing that you can't do it yourself. Notice, too, that it doesn't say grace to those who are believers only, or only speak edifying words that give grace to those who deserve it, or grace to those who are your friends. It says to everyone who hears. That doesn't mean there's not a time for a rebuke, but our rebuke loses its graciousness when we're not careful with the very words we use. Whether we exaggerate, whether we repeat falsehoods, whether we make assumptions, whether we use derogatory terms, at that point, even the most well-intentioned rebuke becomes sinful. And so Solomon writes in Proverbs 15, 1 and 2, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. So when we speak, even to refute a rebuke, we must use our words not to wound, but to heal. Solomon likewise says in Proverbs 12, 18, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. As one commentator notes, our words reflect the true essence of who we are, and they will provide irrefutable evidence on Judgment Day. And it's to this day of judgment that we must look and remember when we speak. In fact, we really do well to remind ourselves and remind one another that our words will be judged. Be careful what we say. Be careful how we say it. Our words will be judged both with regard to justification as evidence of that as well as reward. What exactly does this reward look like? I don't know exactly. And though we have indications through some of the parables concerning greater responsibility and authority in the age to come, even though we don't know exactly, we do see that this theme of judgment and reward throughout Scripture, when James says that teachers incur a stricter judgment, why? Because they use a lot of words. We see in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what has been done, whether good or bad. There is a judgment for all, including believers. It's a reminder we should act as a, that reminder should act as a guard and a restraint over our mouths, helping us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, careful to speak what gives grace in the moment. But what of these justifying words in verse 37? How do my words justify me? I thought salvation was by grace alone. Does I earn my salvation through the words that I speak? Well, we can look back to Matthew 10, 32 through 33 to help us understand this. Remember, we covered this as we were looking at Paul's, I'm sorry, <laughs> Jesus is sending out of the apostles. It says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. 
To confess signifies an open declaration of allegiance. And this confession, the ability to confess, we learn throughout Scripture, comes through the work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit working within us to give us a new heart, a new mind. Titus describes it as the washing, the regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That same Spirit here that we're speaking about being blasphemed is the very one who works within us to give us the ability to confess Jesus as Lord. And so then it becomes the evidence of that inner working of the Spirit, which provides evidence of that justification. Confession, then, is not simply words about Christ. It's claiming allegiance to him because your heart, your affections have been changed. Your citizenship has been changed. The denial of Christ in that passage is the opposite of confession. It's to deny allegiance, solidarity, loyalty, or commitment. It's to say that Jesus is a good teacher, but he's not God. Or it's to say he is wise, but not king, or not my king. And those words will condemn one if they die in their sin, having never repented. And yet, as one commentator notes, those who disown Jesus here on earth are stuck with the consequences of their choice. And they will necessarily find themselves disowned before the Heavenly Father. Jesus is pointing out that there are permanent consequences for rejecting him with our mouth. It's a good place to stop and Again, say, if you are here this morning and have not trusted Christ as your Savior, I want to encourage you to do that today. To consider the ugliness of your sin, how offensive it is to God, chief among those being your rejection and denial of Christ who came to give himself as a sacrifice for you. Your sin, no matter how little your sin may be in your eyes, is onerous to God. It is ugly to God. It is putrid to God. And it incites his wrath upon you. Which is exactly why he sent Jesus into the world. Because he loved the world. Not desiring any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So he sent Jesus as the means of salvation. If we will, as Paul says in Romans 10.9, confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. And the promise is, if you will do that, you will be saved. Repenting and asking the Lord to forgive you. And the promise is that he will. There's no work you have to do, no penance that has to be performed. You must simply believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to take away, take your place, and bear the punishment of your sins in his body on the cross. Don't delay another day, another hour, another minute. Thinking back to that analogy in illustration with the Pharisees, that concrete, when it's poured, it begins to set harder and harder. The longer you wait, the harder it will be to return. So repent today. Not only are we reminded of the importance and the significance of our words, but notice too that this whole passage, specifically the end, it teaches us about the power of God who has a record of everything that has ever been said or done. Isn't that amazing to think about? He has a record of everything that has ever been said at any time of history, history, or has been done. Not only that, we know that he understands the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So he knows everything that has been thought through all eternity. What an amazing, to a large extent, incomprehensible God we serve. Words and speech are a tremendous gift. One I don't think we pause to consider 
very often. We really take it for granted because we use it every day. The ability to communicate with speech and words is part of the imago Dei, that is the image of God. No other created thing can communicate the breadth and the extent of ideas, thoughts, concerns, and emotions like mankind because he was created in God's image. In fact, as a result of the fall, the power of speech, this, this beautiful, wonderful gift of speech had to be curtailed because of the danger that would ensue if it had been left alone. And so God confused the languages at Babel. As we've seen this morning, this amazing gift is a double-edged sword. It's capable of bringing either life or death. Implicit in the closing of verses 36 and 37 is the warning and the reminder that judgment is coming. There is a day of judgment. So the questions that we'll close by asking are this. Am I ready? Do my words demonstrate my love for Christ? What do I need to do to better demonstrate that love for Christ through my words? And finally, do your words, if you were to turn to the person next to you and ask them, do my words give evidence that I am ready for the day of judgment, how would they respond? How would they respond? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this sobering reminder and yet such an important reminder to us this morning of the significance of words and speech. Father, help us to guard our lips. Help us to guard our tongues. Father, give to each one of us lips that speak life, that give grace to those who hear. Help us to curtail our sinful propensities. Father, we recognize it is through your spirit. There's no shame in acknowledging it. Father, we can't do this by ourselves. There's no amount of effort we can do to manufacture this. Father, would we be obedient to meditate upon your word, upon Christ, to kindle those affections and that love for him that fills that storehouse that then comes out through our speech. Help us to be obedient in these things and help us to love Christ more. Help prepare us for the day of judgment. Keep that ever before us, not for our own sakes, but also so that part of our speech, a significant part of our speech, would be a testimony to those around us and that many would come to know you through our speech. In your name, amen.